Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. It is Lenny Murphy here with episode five of the Green Book Podcast. And today our topic is, are we approaching a sample supply crisis? Uh, and I am joined with two guests this time. First, Melanie Courtright from the Insight Association. Melanie, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. And Howard Feinberg from the Insight Association. Howard, welcome. It's a pleasure, Lenny. It's great to be on. Thank you. Now, Obviously, we've known each other for a long time, but in case the audience doesn't, you want to give just a quick update on uh, uh, who you are and what you do? So, Mel, ladies first. Thank you. Yeah, I am Melanie Courtright. I'm the CEO of the Insights Association. I've been in this seat just a little over two years now. It's um, It feels a lot longer than that. It feels like home a bit, so that's very cool. Um, those of you who don't know me, I have certainly been in the research and insights and analytics profession much longer than that, over almost three decades now. So very, very familiar with the space and super happy to be serving in the role I have now. Thank you, Melanie. Howard. Hi, uh, Howard Feinberg, Senior VP of Advocacy for the Insights Association. And I've been with the organization through multiple mergers and name changes and all the rest, more than 15 years now. And I am the lobbyist and all round advocate for the insights industry. Prior to insights, I was uh, legislative aid in Congress. And prior to that, even, I got my start with this industry via APOR and their online listserv. And really getting steeped in a lot of polling issues. And that brought me in once I left the Hill. That's how I ended up working with uh, this association. That's fantastic. And as you, our audience will know, two of the nicest people around. So this will be a, a fun conversation, but not necessarily a fun topic. So why don't we dive right in? So we're here to talk about the state of the sample industry overall. And there's a, a, a whole lot happening behind the scenes we're gonna dive into that, that's helped informing that. But can you give me your one word sentiment or reaction when you, you hear the term sample? Howard, what's your one word reaction? Uh, cost. <laughs> All right. Since this is audio only, you didn't see Howard's face. But, uh, he, he was struggling just a little bit. I had difficulty not being the research professional here. So. <laughs> I think, all right, sorry. If, if we could do that again, I would say census, because that's what the sampling all comes back to, is data from the census. Okay. All right. Mel? For me, it's uh, pivotal. And, and I don't, that's a word that gets overused, but as I sit here with you, I can't think of another word that's better than pivotal. We're at a, a really important pivotal time. Everything about the needs of the buyers is changing and everything about the behaviors of the consumers is changing. Demand is changing, law is changing. And it's just a really, it's a point in time where we, I think we'll all look back and, and remember this as a time when great change was demanded and great change was implemented coming up in the next few years. That's great. And I would say foundational. 
the insights function doesn't exist without sample, period, and story. So we have to have people to ask questions of to inform business decisions. And, and I think that is often overlooked. So now you know, we've all been around for a long time and we've seen waves of focus around this general issue of, of sample quality and supply you know, different clients throwing their weight behind different ideas over the years, but it's never seemed to take in the, the primacy of position in the industry conversation that it deserves, in my opinion. But this feels different. It feels as if there's a perfect storm of issues around demand, issues around quality from a supply perspective, and also know, uh, legislative factors that are kind of redefining our relationship with, with respondents and what we can and can't do. The game really has changed at this point. This is not something that we can give short shrift to anymore. It is a topic that we must focus on as an industry. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, having been in the space for a really long time, I, I totally agree that we sort of wander in and out of worrying about, you know, sampling. In any of those points in time, the pain that we went through, they always yielded something that improved it. I remember when we did FOQs and the SMR28 and, and all the other efforts, they all yielded something. We got better at deduplication work. We got better at understanding panel overlap. We got better at attention checks. We got, I mean, we, it always yielded something. And so I think we're at another point in time, though, where there is so much demand and so much changing demand for the kind of data people want and so much changing legislation is going to force us into one of those points and periods of time again when we're going to have to really focus on it and come out with some, some improvements that solve the newest set of pain. It's not an easy process to go through. It never has been. It never will be. But it always yields something on the other side of it that makes us stronger. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So why don't we, Howard, let's let's start with the regulatory pieces first. Uh, so what is your take on what's happening at a state and national level that could impact this conversation around sample? All right, that's fair. So there's been you know increasing focus on consumer data privacy for pretty much my entire you know, my tenure here. And it's something that's been taken more seriously over time as well, I think. I, it was something talked about when I started, but it was trickled out in very specific ways and, and people freaking out about online behavioral advertising when that first came on the scene. That led to consideration about how people attract online over time. A lot of this, the concerns grew as our industry and basically the data industry overall became much more complex and regulators have difficulty getting their heads around it. They always have had that difficulty. Policymakers find it overall find it almost impossible to understand how everything works. Even an inkling of it is very difficult for most of them. And if you consider the average age of a senator or congressman, you can understand why they might have difficulties with this anyways. But learning little bits and pieces, but it doesn't always work out the way it should, certainly for how our industry operates and can operate and still being able to deliver insights for uh, whoever our clients may be. And you know, Europe has unfortunately set, you know, in many respects, the wrong example over time with something that looks positive and sounds like they are doing a great job protecting privacy with you know, originally their private data directive 
which became the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. And that's what they want to be the model for the world, in theory. In practice, it's a way for them to try to discriminate against foreign markets, especially the US market, as much as possible. Because within the EU, the GDPR is a form of co-regulation. They're not out there, other than the occasional enforcement against major companies like Google or Facebook, overall, it is an opportunity for the regulators and domestic businesses to work behind the scenes and take care of issues behind the scenes. They're not out there enforcing privacy in a transparent manner. Consumers are, may or may not ever be protected in a lot of these ways, partially because they never really know what's going on. And ultimately, punishment is saved for foreign companies, particularly large U.S. ones, if they get the opportunity. That is what they're really all about. Even former President Obama admitted that the primary focus and motivation of GDPR was a competition issue with the U.S. So we've not been you know, suggesting that GDPR is something that should be adopted in the U.S. There's no way in which it could actually work here because it is, it's a very European way of looking at the world in terms of rights and such that does not apply here. However, uh, there have been uh, attempts at the state level to come up with comprehensive privacy regulations. And California likes to lead on all sorts of things um, whenever it comes to privacy. So in 2018, they came up with the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA. And over time, that has been tweaked and grown. You know, we've been part of a lot of battles in the state legislature there as they've tried to shape it and grow it. They recently passed a ballot initiative to expand it even further and change it into the California Privacy Rights Act. And that CPRA, that comes into effect next year in 2023. And so now you have a bit of a race on. So just with CCPA itself, we have lots of companies that are trying to figure out, should we just treat every state's denizens as if they were Californians? Because CCPA is so broad reaching in how it requires you to rework your insights business that perhaps it's, there's a, a certain simplicity in not having to treat a Californian's data differently than that from anyone else. Now, same thing that Europe was hoping with GDPR to get the entire world to just apply GDPR. So other states have gotten into this game. Uh, and last year, both Virginia and Colorado passed their own comprehensive state privacy laws, kind of building on CCPA, but making it their own thing. And those two states, Virginia and Colorado, their legislation that they passed is similar to each other, not all that similar to CCPA, really. So none of the three are compatible with each other. You know, Colorado and Virginia, somewhat compatible, sort of until they start coming up with regulations implementing them, and then they'll be very different. But the three laws, they don't work together very well. And that's why we started working with a coalition called Privacy for America that we helped found several years ago, trying to come up with a model framework for federal privacy regulation in the US. Because there is a need to protect consumers, and there, and there are avenues to do that, and we're trying, to, we're trying to come up with a model that would work for the whole country instead of trying to... This, there's a mess of 
conflicting state laws. It's getting worse, and I can come back to that later as well, uh, what's going on in the last, what happened last year and what's on the docket this year. But the federal level is really where our biggest attention is focused with Privacy for America because there is a need to get something that works for the whole country. And there's no reason that if someone moves from Idaho to California, that their data should be handled completely different. Yeah. What's really interesting about this particular point in time is there is, bipartisan is not really even the right word, there is homogenous need, want, hope for a federal privacy framework. It's bipartisan for sure. There's this new, if you follow the town halls that association does, we just released some findings from the Work for Privacy for America. Democrats, Republicans alike, 92% of people want federal privacy framework. People in every state want federal privacy framework. Both respondents and participants in research and those who deliver research want federal privacy framework. Everybody wants it to be federal. Nobody wants to deal with these 50 state laws that make it impossible for either the person to know their rights or the company to know how to handle the data. Yeah, agreed. And I, you know, full disclosure, you guys know this, but for the audience, you know, this is a topic near and dear to my heart to the point that I've been working with, you know, founding another company trying to address this from a market perspective. I'm not going to get into the pitch on all that, but that's, I hear you and agree. My preference would be for the market to address this on its own without regulators, but the reality is that we're going to need a regulatory framework as well that is not confusing and contradictory in so many cases. But you know what's interesting? So we, we are recording this on February 3rd and looking at the, uh, the headlines this morning about the crash of Facebook and all the social media uh, platforms from a stock perspective driven by a decline in users. And I suspect, based upon the data that you just cited, Melanie, right, that there is a, a huge consumer appetite for some type of process to have a different model on how data is utilized. And Howard, you kind of hinted at this. You know, there's the insights function, and then there's the marketing function. And these two are intertwined and maybe they shouldn't be perceptually, but the reality is that it's around utilizing consumer data to drive an incredibly large industry, particularly from the advertised perspective. And that's probably what has driven the consumer perspective on this of, whoa, wait a minute, you know what about me? And <laughs> you're using it to promote what? There's a backlash about that. And we're seeing it publicly. My, my theory is we really dug into this. What we're seeing happen right now with the social media platforms in terms of their reporting, their results is, you know, we are seeing a grassroots consumer-led process of people saying, I'm not going to engage in this anymore. The only way that I can manage this myself is I'm just not going to give you my information. I'm not going to participate in the platform. So that does seem to be creating the opportunity for more momentum, I suspect, from a regulatory perspective, to your point, Mel, on this, this kind of bipartisan approach. Because people are just saying, I don't want to do this this way anymore. Am I reading too much into it? What do you think? Is there uh, anything that you've seen from the consumer perspective that would validate that, that this isn't just a top-down thing? This really is a bottom-up initiative. No, it really is. Uh, and if you think about you know, the people in Congress who have trouble understanding what we're doing with data, imagine people who aren't in the business world at all trying to figure out you know, from the bottom up what we're doing with their data. You know, There used to be this, it was a little bit of a wild west, free for all. There's a lot of data out there, grab it, use it, just try to use it ethically. That world no longer exists. And so it's creating 
sort of a, a gap in the need for really great permission-based data. And it's driving up demand for the stuff that is permission-based. And there's a ton of work that organizations want to do with data. And so there's it's just generating this really big demand for data that is permission-based and legally collected and ethically used. And, and there's not enough data out there now. Um, there's, there's becoming a bit of a data demand gap. You see it developing in, you know, uh, panel capabilities and what they can deliver. And, and, you know, there's more demand than there is supply. And I'm talking about data in general, not just data first for panel data. You can get a lot of good data from panel, but there's a supply gap there too. So there's so much demand. Demand is increasing for data, but it's getting harder to get data that is usable, permissible, collected with consent. So, you know, again, this pivotal point in time when we want to do so much, but we have to figure out where to find the data and is the governance proper and do I have the right to use it? And am I going to end up on the news? <laughs> and I would point out as well, Lenny, you, you hit upon a, a difficult issue for the industry that's you know, dogged it for probably generations in attempting to differentiate research from marketing you know, when we're talking about market research, which I think consumers, to a certain extent, and certainly policymakers, they don't care about that difference anymore. I think that there was a bit of interest in that vaguely when I started, but I've watched that interest disappear, and that's part of that was part of our motivation in you know, getting involved in the federal privacy legislation was that we need to focus on a baseline standard that works across industries and across functions. That research is special, absolutely. And it should be treated as such, but uh, simply crying for a carve out from every you know, restriction and regulation that comes along just doesn't cut it anymore. And, I mean, if it ever really did, uh, because people don't recognize that kind of difference. And, and within insights companies and organizations, that you know, separation is sometimes uh, pretty loose. And... We can deal with that from an ethical standpoint, and you know, Melanie could talk about that for days, I suspect. But from a regulatory standpoint, it makes much more sense to deal with how data is used in a much more tangible fashion, and to, to look at how that moves across the ecosystem and how it's treated across the ecosystem is probably more important to regulation than it is to you know, their specifics about, well, it's used for this purpose specific here, and differentiating somewhere else. Yeah. I will say the insights profession has done a not terrible job sort of governing ourselves. We've had some mistakes for sure. We, we've done a not terrible job governing ourselves and governing the use of data, provisions of data, protecting the participants and even the privacy and all of that stuff. So this might be where Howard and I, and I disagree, but I don't think so. For the most part, what we're seeing is that the government's not coming after the insights profession today. And so I think if we continue to self-govern, to do things right, to keep marketing and insights separate but familiar, I think we will continue to benefit from them not coming specifically after the insight sector. That's why the Insights Association does what it does. But if we have a couple of big flub-ups, then <laughs> flub-ups, that's the right word, <laughs> then they will come after us just like they're coming after everybody else. Yeah, no, I agreed, and, and rightfully so. I mean, the difference is that we are transparently permission-based. And I think that's a great place to start. I, I would argue that if we're going to restructure the marketing data industry, we should start with the insight space as the foundation for that, because we are based on, on that transparent permission relationship with respondents. Now, there's a whole other conversation on whether that is a true value exchange, which we can get into as well. 
but we'll, we'll leave that for the moment. So agreed, it's not a carve out. We really are unique. Now, and Mel, you, you kind of hit at this, so let's let's talk about this other piece of the, the overall topic of, is there a supply problem? I am hearing anecdotally from everybody that I talk to, and I talk to a lot of folks on both the supplier side and the brand side that, yeah, it's getting really difficult to, to complete studies that even a few months ago, we wouldn't have thought twice about. And on top of that, that even if you can complete the quotas efficiently and, and quickly fill those quotas, there is also a significant quality issue. And that I've heard horrifying stories of the average seems to be 30% of many completes that are collected online are being tossed. I've heard it's as bad as 70% for some, some cases. And that, that is, that's just mind blowing or not as the case may be, uh, unfortunately. So if we have these kind of three forces, right? We have this regulatory component. We also have this consumer upswelling of, I just don't want to engage in this anymore. And we have increased demand because the world is crazy and, and research rose to the occasion, right? There's been a, an incredible need to deliver insights so that everybody could adapt and understand what was going on. But now we're having this, both this, this overall supply issue and this quality issue. So what are you aware of in terms of the Insight Association and what, what initiatives are, are in play to address those two specific pieces on the overall supply problem and the quality issue? Well, yes, I'm aware of the growth of the sector. So, you know, can celebrate for like half a second and say that the sector has rebounded super well from everything that happened in 2020 and growing. When I talk to people all over that are in the know, they're growing by leaps and bounds. They're, they're just really doing well. But that means that there's an increased demand for insights. Yay, but increased demand for data. I don't think that we've had any massive innovation in the last couple of years that has created a groundswell of additional data, especially against that backdrop we just talked about with consumers being a little bit more cautious about what they participate in, how their data is used, and the requirement to gather the data with consent and ethically. So we've got this perfect storm of lots of people needing lots of really good data to make these really important insights and understandings and business decisions given how much the world is changing, but we don't have that supply that's coming in in a really exponential way. And so it's creating an opportunity. Higher demand always creates an opportunity for fraud and for hackers. I've seen it in my career over and over and over again. You guys, Those who know me know my background. I, I've lived deep in the weeds of fraud and data quality for my whole career. And every time there is a big increase in demand and a constriction on supply, you end up with an issue with quality and the weaknesses in the system are found and they are worked out by the hackers. And, you know, we see that. It's cyclical. Now, this one is a little bit different, I think, because what we're finding is that the technology that surrounds how to find this latest wave of true fraud, way back when we started doing online and, and mushing all the panels together, we didn't know how to stop duplicates. We had to learn. Now, with this massive increase in actual fraud, the technology solutions that are out there, they're all actually flagging different things. The Inside Association Town Hall when you hear this, it will have been held and there's a, a town hall recording on our website that you should listen to because what it says is that we're not good as an industry at identifying and removing fraud. 
every platform that's out there is finding different things. They're tagging different people. One says this person's a fraud. Another says that person's a fraud. Um, if you look at it all and you use them all, you might think everybody's a fraud. I mean, and so I feel for the researcher of today trying to figure out what data to use because as a profession, we need to get our arms around this. And it's an opportunity, but it's also a massive pain point right now. Yeah. Well, and a piece of that, certainly the drive for automation and speed, which is a macroeconomic force that it's simply, it is, we can't stop it. It's going to be that way. But the downside has been that it has limited our ability to even manually try and go through and deal with fraud. The time just isn't allowed to be there. So we must get better from a technology perspective to flag these things on the front end, as well as I, I think a big piece of the solution simply is that maybe we need to rethink sampling models so that we can identify and validate real people up front before they're flowing in an anonymous way, which unfortunately is is a large part of the, the sample supply overall. Yeah, I mean, you, you've heard me say that fraudsters love two things, volume and velocity. They love the opportunity to do a lot of stuff in a really quick period of time so they can get in and get out before you find them and block them. And so in a world with higher demand and the need for speed, that's the perfect storm for volume and velocity fraudsters. And we should point out, this is not an issue that just affects the research industry. The other side of the coin is in the world of marketing, you know, uh, the click farms, right, for online advertising. Huge, I mean, billions and billions of dollars lost annually because of these same fraudsters, you know, finding a way to make a quick buck. So this, is, this isn't just our problem. It, it's tied into this larger issue on our digital individual level data ecosystem that's powering a, a very complex market that research is a piece of that one way or the other. All right, so you mentioned the town hall. We've all been following uh, and working with CASE, this group of clients who have been spearheading the issue around sample quality for a few years. And I'm aware that they conducted a study that was powered by a bunch of big clients, you know, paid for. And they're going to reveal the results of this study at this town hall that is going to be on Friday the 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern. So if you haven't registered, go to the Insight Association website and register for it. I am. Uh, and they're going to unveil some of those uh, some of those results. This podcast will be published afterwards. So you want to give us a little bit of a sneak peek on what we can expect to hear? Yeah. So I'll first say that it's a collaboration. Case worked with the Insights Association, proud participants, and with the ARF, and with, like you said, a bunch of really important and passionate brand side researchers, and with uh, technology providers who helped us to do the test. The test centered around, let's see if the technology that's out there can do an effective job at uh, finding duplicates and finding fraud and finding quality. And so the key findings center around three things. One, duplicates. What it seemed to find was that there are still some issues with just identifying and flagging duplicates, but for the most part, the technology across the providers is pretty consistent. There was an outlier and sometimes it has to do with mobile. And so what's really cool is that as a result of some of this work that we've done with them, some of them actually made some changes to how they're handling and the, the logic within their systems and within their technology. The second was around actual fraud. People are who they say they are, they're from where they say they are, that sort of thing. This one was unfortunately not a great finding. I really hope that you'll go to the, if you didn't get to be a part of the town hall, 
and you're hearing this, I hope that you'll go and find that town hall on the Insights Association website. It's there in the town hall library. But what it found was that the technology seems to be pretty nascent, uh, pretty young, pretty immature at finding actual fraud and it's staying current. It's very hard. It is very much like the war on terror. You find something out and then you block them and then they find another way to cross your borders. They find another way to get into your country. They find another way to get into your cyber world. And so you're constantly having to be you know, on guard. And right now the technology, they're all flagging different people. It's very inconsistent. If you as a buyer are using one of them and you switch tomorrow, you're going to get a different outcome. If you're using all four of them, you're going to see they're all flagging different things. It's very immature. And the final third sort of major mega finding was just about participation rates. There seems to be a lot of people taking a lot of surveys, and I know we've talked about that in the past, but there's some real data here that would seem to say it's getting worse, not better, and that you might be getting a lot of people that are taking you know, a lot of surveys. It's kind of becoming a full-time job for a population. We faced it before, we addressed it, we have to address it again. Yeah, so the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? These are issues we've been challenged with for a long time, but more to the point where we've made efforts, absolutely, over time, we have innovated, but it feels like a potential crisis point. And that crisis would be a crisis of confidence in our results. And we're, you know, we, we've all seen issues around polling, public polling, uh, obviously, over the last few years, and, and major concerns about the accuracy of some of those results. That's one thing, but when we've got a misfire for a client that costs them a billion dollars, you know what? That's going to be a big deal. Thankfully, I haven't heard of something like that yet, but the emphasis is on the yet. This is a survival issue for the industry. It's, a, it's an ethical issue. It's an integrity issue. But if we don't fix this, if we don't get this right, then there are huge implications for all of the gains, as you said, I mean, we rose to the occasion in 2020, the industry grew, you know, at least in North America, where many others did not, right? I think it's been fantastic. And we've seen massive innovation and growth in a lot of companies and wealth creation for individual entrepreneurs who worked for years to, uh, you know, blood, sweat and tears to make things happen and their employees. It's been great. Well, we got to get this right or it's not going to continue, right? Does that sound too apocalyptic? I'm not trying to be a doom and gloomer, but I, I do feel strongly that this is a critical issue for us as an industry. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Those who know me know this about me. I am eternally optimistic. I think we have incredibly smart people who are passionate about what we do. And I think we will come together and make some make some improvements. So, you know, I really do. So that that optimism is certainly tempered by the fact that the cost implications of what they probably need to do to implement this and implement this properly and the collaboration issues that probably need to happen are going to be painful. And so it's going to take everyone in our ecosystem saying, yes, we care about this enough that we're going to put our money behind it. We're going to put our brains behind it and we're going to set our, our personal walls aside and we're going to work on it together. And that'll be, that'll be hard, but it'll be worth it. Agreed. Well, and the good news from the money standpoint is that there's a hell of a lot of money flowing in the industry right now, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, I think the investment community understand part of that, those dollars need to go towards this issue or your investments may not uh, do well. So, Howard, what do you so say? So, I, I mean, I wanted to talk about the cost side of sample, and I'm not just thinking of the yeah, regulatory cost of trying to figure out how to handle privacy. 
but uh, more direct costs. You know, so in 2020, we had to muster resources to fight against a new law in California where they came up with a minimum wage for research subjects as part of a broader fight against independent contractors, uh, which research subjects are. We wouldn't want to treat them as employees. And we were successful in you know, being able to beat that back and get a specific fix in law in California just this past fall. But it is indicative of broader problems that will impact that kind of, you know, that money, that profit margin uh, is always going to be at risk from the regulatory state. And we've been pretty active the last couple of years at the state level, fighting against specific taxes that would be falling on our industry in various ways, including a couple of states like Nebraska and South Carolina trying to expand their sales taxes to cover services, which includes all sorts of inside services. And New York, West Virginia, Washington, all coming up with different ways of trying to tax the value of data, which is an interesting thing to try to figure out how much data is actually worth to and to whom, uh, as well as just an excise tax on the collection of data. And you know, we had at least a particularly good success working with a big coalition to defeat a tax on the sale of data in the, Washington, in the District of Columbia. So there are a lot of different fronts on which there are threats to that profit margin. And the money that is coming into the industry at the Insights Association, we're going to be doing our best to make sure that we can keep that at bay so that, that you know, those profits can still flow and people can still get their insights. But it is something to worry about. Agreed. Now, I'm going to make a, a controversial comment on this. Out of all the things I saw coming out of California, establishing a minimum wage for participation was the thing that I had the least problem with. I think we've had a problem for a long time of devaluing individuals' time and participation, and that's part of our supply problem, I suspect. I am all for establishing for consumer research, you know, 25 cents a minute, right? $15 an hour, that's the base for a standard consumer research participation. Why not? You know, if that is where the world is moving, we need to value people's time appropriately. So I hope we do see that, Howard. I'm not dismissing any of your, your points, but I do think that we as an industry need to get a better handle on the economics and just say, we need to reward people appropriately. And this is a standard that is a baseline and that people are thinking about it. And I'm not talking about B2B, right? But for your standard consumer research, let's pay them fairly, period, end of story. I think it's not that simple, though. It's not just about whether or not we're going to pay them fairly. And you know what? I think as a business, if you want to make that decision to do that, I, I would applaud you. But what was happening in California was not just let's pay consumers fairly for their time. It was about whether or not research participants should be considered employees, employees who have the right to a minimum wage, who have the right to benefits, who could perhaps form a union and demand certain things. Like this is about being able to do research and having people share a voice without the government interfering with the sharing of an opinion. I think that people should pay more. I think that would help with some of the response rates. I think there's a ceiling on that though, but mostly I think it becomes a business issue, a competitive issue, a competitive positioning issue, and it should not be that they're considered employees under state law. That's my opinion. Agreed, 100%. The law in California was never going to be able to be implemented properly by most companies right? because it's not a job. And because someone, if they're coming to a panel and, you know, they're right, I'm going to respond to this particular survey and the idea that you 
how do you count their time? How do you count when they were actually participating in that survey versus they had it open on a window on the right-hand side of their screen and you know, they left it sitting there for five hours and came back to it later. There are so many complicated you know, derivations of this that it's something that a company could and should address internally, but having it imposed by a government makes it really unworkable. Yeah, I agree. Thank you both for actually clarifying that. My, my comment was more around the idea of a fair value exchange with consumers. I, again, I'm not, not a fan of that, of regulatory frameworks to, to deal with those things and certainly don't think we need to have unions of respondents. That's kind of, you know, the, that's, the, <laughs> that's a bad idea. Really bad. Professional respondents, well, there we go, right? The, yeah, that was the last point I was going to make was if you worry about professional respondents, imagine if they really felt like they could call it a job. And then they sit around all day and they're figuring out how to make the most of that and earn the most money as like a side hustle or a gig. And so that's not what we want. And we don't want, you know, a big pool of professional respondents trying to earn a living and be considered actual employees in the opinion space. And that is indeed the problem that we see with legislation called the PRO Act in Congress. It's twice passed the House of Representatives. And because of how it rejiggers the definition of an independent contractor, and the imposition of an ABC test, it would most likely mean that most research subjects would be considered employees and subject to unionization. Yeah, that's a whole other topic <laughs> that we can get into. And it is interesting. So when we think about all of the various issues, we're talking about sample quality. There are others. I think the, this, this great resignation and you know how we're, that's affecting the relationship between work and workers. And there's lots of big things happening right, that are changing the world, therefore going to change us. And so I, I hope that you two will come back at some point uh, this year, and let's talk on those other topics as well, because they're important. Our industry is under a lot of pressure for transformation right now from a variety of fronts, and we've talked about just this one around sample, but those are all great points, Howard, the, overall. So on that note, as we kind of wrap up, one, thank you guys. This has been a fantastic conversation, and and we will have more of these. What else would you like our listeners to know about Insight Association, uh, other important things that we better be paying attention to? How can we help support your mission? So Howard, why don't we go with you and we'll let Mel have the final word. Most important uh, in support of all the things that we're doing on the privacy side and everything, tax, you know, the support for making sure the research subjects can be research subjects and, you know, all of that, everything we do is supported by membership, individual and company membership. It's one of the most important things. That's how I'm able to do what I do. That's how the association is able to advocate both you know, when it comes to legislative regulatory issues and everything else. All right, so people become members of the Inside Association. And I, I would encourage you to do that. I, I personally am not because I just have a weird role in the industry, but if I didn't have that complication, I absolutely would and encourage everybody to, to do the same. So Melanie. Yeah, so the membership structure, the membership dues, they fund everything that Howard just talked about, but we really have five core things we're working on. And I bet you care about every one of these. And if you're not following them, I would encourage you to do so. We're involved in the supply, demand, quality, and ethics of data collection, very involved there. We're also very involved in changing the language of our profession 
diversity and inclusion and the evolving market, its size, its shape, what's growing, what's shrinking, that top, uh, that market size and sort of, you know, the top sectors work is coming out very, very soon. And then finally, privacy for America and, and all things privacy. So we're doing a lot. And if you're not involved in it, following it, staying in touch with it, your, your business will suffer. It will not be as strong as it could be without the, the information that we're going to provide in the coming 12 months. Agreed. And for you know, Green Book listeners, know that we are, we consider the Inside Association great partners and we support your efforts and we'll continue to give you a voice to our audience as well and support you in any way that we can. And, and you know, on that note, that the case group are presenting at IEX in Austin as well. So these are topics that we're passionate about as well, and we're going to continue to do what we can to support you. And we're going to continue the conversation ourselves, too, at the annual event in Philadelphia, April 4th to the 6th. If you're not aware of that event, it's a brand new branding on the next event. It's really called the annual. And the reason we're changing is because it's really about an annual coming together, celebrate what we've accomplished, inspire what we have ahead of us, and come together as a group of, uh, as a family, really, and plan the future of our space. So, again, that's April 4th to 6th in Philadelphia. Good. So, everybody, go to Philly and then come to Austin. Yes. <laughs> and let's all be together again finally i actually haven't said this publicly i will be in austin this year this will be the first event i've attended in person in four years and by god i'm looking forward to it so awesome yeah. awesome so anyway guys thank you so much for the time thank you for your wisdom thanks for all of your work and effort we appreciate it and with that we will end this session and we'll see our audience or talk to our audience again soon with uh, our next remote podcast thank you all thank you thanks Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transforming insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.